We come now to the time in our service where we look to God's Word, and this evening we return to the Gospel of Mark. Our sermon this evening is not directly about Christmas, but it is about Christ, and indirectly all of Scripture is about Christmas because it is all about Christ. And as we've been working our way through this Gospel presentation, Mark's account of the events of the life and death of Christ... We've seen Jesus interact with all kinds of people, fishermen, tax collectors, rulers and lawyers of the Jews, lepers, demon-possessed people, and more. And some of these people accepted Jesus' message and joined him in his mission, and others did not. And here in Mark 10, we see a man and an event and an interaction with someone that, that we haven't seen before, a man who was very wealthy And we see what it would mean for him to follow Jesus. Because in the Gospel of Mark, as I've said many times before and want to continually keep these questions before you, Mark answers these three questions. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? So if you're here tonight and don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe those questions have swirled around in your head. And hopefully this passage will help to answer those because we see very clearly what it meant for this man to follow Jesus. So let us pause and pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading of his word and the preaching of his word. And then we'll read our text from Mark 10. Let us pray. Lord God, we need you. We need your word, and we sit under its authority, knowing that it is divinely inspired. It is inspired of the Holy Spirit, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Lord, we ask that your word would do its work among us tonight. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark 10, beginning with verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. What is the one thing that you most desire right now? Maybe it's just to have all your children come home and be together as a family at Christmas. If you're a kid, maybe it's that one thing that's at the top of your Christmas list that you want more than anything else. If you're single, it might be that you would find your, your life love. If you're married and you're struggling in your marriage, perhaps it's just... Oh, if we could just have harmony and peace in our home. In our text tonight, tonight, we see a man whose life was defined by one thing. And in this interaction with our Lord, Jesus put his finger on that one thing. I want us to see this text tonight under four headings. First of all, an honest question. Secondly, a costly requirement. Third, the challenge of entering the kingdom. And finally, the reward of entering the kingdom. First of all, an honest question. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek because there is an aspect in which the question that this man asks is good and another that we're not sure about. The text tells us in the opening verse that they are on their way to Jerusalem, as we've said, that, that... that in these middle chapters of Mark, we're building up to the crucifixion and the events of what we call Passion Week. And in the very next chapter, we see Jesus making his triumphal entry in Mark 11, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they're on their way, and this man runs up and kneels before Jesus. Now, this account, maybe in the heading of your Bible, um, has been called the, the account of the rich young ruler. There's parallel passages in Matthew and also in Luke that give us a little more detail. Mark doesn't tell us either one of those things, except he does tell us that he is wealthy, that he is rich, but that not until verse 22. Mark, in his characteristic style, first tells us of the action, the running, the kneeling. Here's this man casting all convention aside, seeking Jesus and wanting to get to him and ask him his question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we see the goodness in this because he is recognizing that Jesus has that answer. He is going to the right source. He is also recognizing that there is eternal life available. But he doesn't seem to completely understand that Jesus is the source of eternal life. His question is good in one sense, but... In a way that the rest of the conversation goes, we see we're not sure that his heart is in the right place. We wonder if he is seeing eternal life as something he earns from his obedience to the law. So then Jesus poses a question to him. You know, Jesus is so good about answering questions with questions to really get to the heart of the matter. And he does that here. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, some have seen this question that Jesus poses back to this man as somehow pointing to our Lord's divinity, which 
is, is possible. However, I think he's really setting this man up to think about where his goodness, where his supposed goodness lies. You see, this man thinks he's pretty good. In his own mind, he's really good. And Jesus points him to the commandments. He says, what does the commandments say? And he, he, Jesus lists several of them there. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. Jesus points him to the law. And particularly to what we call the second tablet of the law. Or those um, commandments that deal with our interactions with others. And in this man's mind, as in the minds of others since then, and especially today, this seems easily quantifiable. Easy, he, he can check these boxes. He can say, yes, I am obeying the law. And, and we could ask ourselves, I don't, I don't know everyone's heart or everyone's history or your criminal record, but he was going down the list that, that day. Jesus, and he's saying... No, I haven't killed anyone. I can check that box. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I can check all of these boxes. And he says to Jesus, he says, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Not only is he doing good today, he's been doing good for years. He's been checking the boxes pretty much all his life. This man was moral. He was good in his own eyes. He was even good in the eyes of people around him. The man thought he knew Jesus and his teaching. However, he had probably not heard Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Because it was there that Jesus took the commandments and drove them home to the hearts of the people. He said, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her already in his heart. He went on to say, you have heard that it was said, but to those of old you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty, is liable to judgment. And just as Jesus shows us the matters of the hearts in relation to God's law, he does this for this man as well. And next Jesus gives him the costly requirement. Mark tells us that following this man's self justification, his own account of how he had kept the law, Jesus was looking at him and loved him. And, and in a casual reading of this, and, and I've been guilty of this myself, you look at what Jesus does and you think, oh man, Jesus is, is nailing him. He, it's this gotcha moment where Jesus is like, boom, dropping it on him right there. And there is a sense where Jesus is, is showing him his own heart. He's showing him his sin, his self-righteousness there. But Jesus loved him. He looked at him and loved him. And Jesus was dealing fairly and lovingly with this man. And we need to note here that it's a good thing when sin is exposed. It's not a blessing for sin to stay hidden. And Jesus lovingly brings this man's sin to light. It's not until sin is known that it can be confessed and forgiven. And in love, Jesus tells him, you lack one thing. And we can almost picture the man, and he's, he's probably saying to himself, oh, one thing, yeah, maybe one thing, probably not two. Yeah, what is it, Jesus? And then Jesus hits him with what he says, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Whew. 
wait a minute. He probably thought, wait a minute, did I hear you right? Sell everything, all my vast possessions, and just give all the money away? Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus repeated it, but in the love and compassion that Christ showed, he probably would have, if, if need be. We see here five verbs that Jesus tells this man, go, sell, give, come, follow. Jesus is not saying this man has to clean up his life. That's not what the scripture's telling us. We don't need to clean up our life before we come to Jesus. We just come. But in coming, we have to leave some things. And that's what he's saying. You got to leave this one thing, but it was oh so big. And the man went away sorrowful. It, it doesn't even tell us that he responded to Jesus. This hit him so hard that he was downcast and just turned and walked away. This man whose affluence could buy him anything he wanted, what Jesus offered him was too costly for him. So Jesus is asking him, will you lay down this one thing that has defined you, this thing that you hold so dear, will you lay it down to follow me? I don't know for you what that one thing might be, but I trust the Spirit is working in your heart to show you what that is. Because Jesus here asked this man, would you leave your earthly treasures to gain treasures in heaven? Sadly, this man basically, in essence, said, no, I'll keep my riches here on earth. And he turned and walked away. And then Jesus, as he was so apt to do, took that moment, this very teachable moment in front of his disciples and taught them of the challenge of the kingdom. And he said to the disciples who had probably just seen these events unfold and, and the interaction and, and, the, and the, the, the downcast look probably of this man and him turning away from Christ's offer of the gospel to him. And Jesus says this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it says the disciples were amazed. And Mark likes that word, I think, because he talks about the amazement of those that interacted with Jesus, that saw his miracles, that heard his teaching. People were amazed. And here the disciples were amazed. And, and Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why they were amazed, perhaps because of the teaching that riches are a sign of God's favor. You know, maybe that's what they believe. Maybe their own heart was following after riches. We know that most of the disciples were poor fishermen. But we don't know exactly. But I think it's probably because they had just seen Jesus' words played out before them. And so in a sense, they were saying, wow, that's exactly right. Because we have just seen it, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus then repeats the lesson and he drives it home with this strange and striking metaphor. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And to that, scripture tells us the disciples were exceedingly astonished. It, they were just blown away, even more so than they were before. Now some have, have tried to explain this with some explanation that there was this gate in the wall of the city of Jerusalem that if a camel would unburden itself and crawl through on its knees or something like that, that, that they could get through. But there's really no scriptural or historic evidence of that. I think Jesus wants us to see the impossibility of it. 
Because the disciples, their reaction was amazement. And really it should be ours as well to think, who then can be saved? Because that's exactly what they said. Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with God, it's possible. It's impossible outside of God, but with God, it is impossible. Jesus has warned in other places about the dangers of riches and the love of money. In Mark 4, when Jesus was giving the parable about the four types of soil, one of those he called the thorny soil. And what those thorns represented were the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Earthly possessions are often deceitful. They give us the perception that we're better off than that we really are. They give us something that, that gives a sense of security and helps us to, to be comfortable when really we shouldn't be. Jesus warns us that we cannot serve God while serving money. He said, again, on the Sermon on the Mount, you cannot serve, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And there is a strange addictive quality about riches. There was a recent article in the New York Times that talked about the the continual need for more, even among the super rich. The title really said it all, and it was this, why don't rich people just stop working? And, the, and, and it tried to peer into a little bit of the reasons why some super rich people are so driven. For some, it was that they couldn't seem to figure out what to do with themselves without the, the constant crazy pace that so many of them keep. For others, it was the constant comparison of themselves with super, other super rich people. And they gave the account of, of one billionaire who saw a friend and a rival who built a 400-foot boat. He waited till he was done and built a 450-foot boat. There's always this constant comparison, even among the super rich. And there's an addiction that, comes, that can come with it. And you don't have to be among the super rich, though, to fall prey to that addiction. Scripture tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And you can love money whether you have $100 in the bank or $100,000 in the bank or $100 million in the bank. You can fall prey to that. And the point that Jesus is making here in our text is summarized in verse 24, that there is difficulty to entering the kingdom of God for anyone and everyone. It's impossible for anyone who trusts in an idol, for this is what Jesus is warning about here, idolatry. For anything that orders your worship is an idol, and deliverance from idolatry is only possible by the power of God. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God, Jesus said. Jesus warns against the dangers of riches because so many take comfort in their riches. They find security in their riches. They become confident in those riches, in their possessions. And the danger of making an idol out of money is the same danger that comes out of making an idol out of anything. Because an idol cannot save. In the Old Testament, we see idols as something that people literally bowed down and worshipped. It, it was things they made with their own hands, either out of gold or silver or wood or stone. And they bowed down to them. And, and we in our modern age think, oh, 
what, what ridiculous backwards people they were. But yet we just simply have more sophisticated idols today. The psalmist reminds us of the vanity of idolatry where in Psalm 135 he said, The idols of the nation are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, as do all who trust in them. That's the vanity of idolatry. And while our modern idols may not be statues of gold and silver fashioned in the shape of man, they are still helpless to save. And Jesus tells us, therefore, that it is difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for anyone. Why is that? I think that it's because we are a nation of doers. We work. We earn. We want to be known as hardworking people. But we are too often like this young man in the Bible. We fail to see that we are sinners because we are doing, so busy doing things that appear to gain us favor. We fail to see sin for what it is. It, sin is an offense against a holy God. Our sin is great, not because it's great in other people's eyes. We often gauge our sins and measure our sins in relation to other people's sins or what we characterize as, as great sins, as gross sins. But sin is sin because it, sin is awful because it's a sin against a very holy and a righteous and a perfect God. And but the Bible tells us that we have all sinned. And if we think of our sin... ...rightly, then how silly, how utterly ridiculous it is for us to try to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do. It is only those who come with nothing that can seriously seek Christ. As the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And we must realize that we cannot save ourselves... ...not by our efforts, not by our riches, not by anything... In ourselves, It's only as we look to Christ and the work that Christ has done that we can come to him and receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. And that's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come and the work is complete. We just have to trust in him. It's a miracle when a rich person enters the kingdom of heaven. But it's a miracle when any of us come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So there's the challenge of entering the kingdom. It's that we must come empty-handed. We must accept the work that Jesus has done, deny ourselves, he said, take up our cross and follow him. And it is then that we can receive the reward of the kingdom. Finally, Jesus deals with the reward of entering the kingdom. Notice here in verse 28 who speaks up first. Of course, it's Peter. Peter always seems to be speaking when it, it really seems like maybe it's a time that's better for reflection and thought. And, and maybe Peter is just, he seems almost to be kind of one of those guys that, that just talks when he gets nervous. I don't know. But he speaks up and he says in verse 28, he says, See, we have left everything and followed you. And, and he seems to be speaking for all the disciples. And... We know that, that Peter hadn't forsaken... I mean, he had forsaken his former way of life... ...but he hadn't sold his things. He still had a house. We read of that. 
He had a boat probably that he had used for fishing that, that Jesus used for ministry. And we know his discipleship was not perfect, but he had willingly and sacrificially left many things and was following Christ. And Jesus here doesn't condemn them. Often Jesus does condemn and and correct their thinking. But here Jesus tells them about the reward of the kingdom. He seems to be approving of their obedience. He tells them that their sacrifice for Christ and for the gospel will be repaid over many times in this life and that there's promise of eternal life. The reward in this life, it's not always easy to see, but it is present, the reward for following Christ. There's not a promise of outrageous wealth. We see that from this text, from many other texts. It's saying that there are rewards, but they, might, they are probably not what you might expect. It's a promise of spiritual and relational blessings within the family of God. And along with those blessings often comes persecution. But those two prove to be a blessing. In that through those things and in everything, God is working for the good of those who love and obey him. The bottom line here is that Jesus calls us to leave everything and follow him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, it means to come and die. Die to ourselves. Forsake the things that we hold dear and follow Christ. And make the things that he values valuable to ourselves. There's only one that can save us from sin, from our own idolatry. Only Jesus can save us. And that only occurs when you come to him and trust completely and exclusively in him alone. Oh, that you would be able to say along with the songwriter, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And that's why Christ came. That's why Jesus was born as a babe. He lived as a man and died a sacrificial death so that we could be saved from our sins. If you're here tonight and these words are new, if this is the first time you've heard this explained in this way, I invite you to trust Christ completely tonight. But perhaps you're here like many of us and have heard this story many times. Maybe you have grown up in the church and could sing every Christmas carol in the book. Yet you know that your life is ruled by one thing. Perhaps that one thing is a life-dominating sin that you can't seem to shake. Perhaps it's a heart-controlling thing that you worship instead of Christ. Perhaps you're like this young man who could point to all this rule-keeping, yet you know that there's one thing that the Spirit is dealing with you now. Jesus came for self-righteous rule-keepers like you and me. And I implore you, cast aside that one thing, that thing that captures your heart and steals your worship, worship, and follow the Lord Jesus. And when you do, you can say with the psalmist, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. What is your one thing? What is that that controls your life? Is it a thing upon earth that only brings fleeting pleasure? Or is it to be in God's presence for now and eternity? Let's pray.